Hey everyone, this is Cobain. Today we're going to be continuing and possibly completing our series of discussions on the New Testament and biblical concept of tradition, and we're going to be talking about the biblical idea of ecclesiastical synods. And I want to try to argue uh, to you today that the Bible has a lot more to say about church councils than it appears at first glance. And Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, is bursting with many more theological implications and relationships to the idea of the church council than you might have noticed. Before getting into that, I just want to say if you've not yet become a patron and you're in a financially good position, please consider becoming a patron. You can see the benefits on the actual Patreon page and at tier three, I guarantee an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion uh, uh, Per month. You can take advantage of that every month if you'd like. Uh, this That's what enables me to continue to putting out these videos and do related things, so please do consider that if you get something out of these videos. Also, on Monday, January 24th, I'll be having a debate with Shabir Ali on the New Test, or on uh, the historical Jesus, whether it is closer to that presented in the New Testament or that presented in the Quran. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I hope I will see you there. I'll probably also be having a debate after show. So let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the uh, substance of the video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, love us mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, of trampling down all carnal desires, and enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and that only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So in the book of Acts, the one spirit descends on Jerusalem to unify the many tribes and tongues into a singular confession of that one Lord on whom the one church calls. The evangelist Luke writes in the grammar of the prophets of Israel, who looked forward to the day when the cloud of divine presence would overshadow the whole of Zion, which in turn would be wholly exalted as a holy mountain into the heaven of heavens, that is, into the third story of creation where God's presence permeated. It was to this place that the nations would flow to hear the instruction, the Torah of the God who fulfilled his prophetic word visibly and definitively. So in Isaiah 24, 25, we read that God, having revealed his glory to those on this mountain, will reveal his glory before his elders. That's Isaiah 24. This passage before his elders echoes Exodus 24, where the inaugural feast of the Sinai Covenant is shared by Moses and 70 elders as they, quote, saw the God of Israel. There are 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10, and Israel here liturgically represents the entirety of mankind as it is gathered into the splendor of uncreated divine light. The prophet Isaiah describes the reign of God on Zion, chapter 24, verse 23, which is then later echoed in Isaiah 52, verse 7, which narrates the accomplishment of the suffering servant, and that enacts, by implication, the reign of God from Zion. In Isaiah 24 and 25, we read of a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, as the feast set for all peoples, 25.6. This, we are meant to see, is what the nations find on Zion when they reach the destination 
of their pilgrimage to hear the word of the God of Jacob, which was told in Isaiah 2, 1-4. God provides his word indeed, the word incarnate. In the book of Acts, the incarnate word ascends into the heavenly sanctuary and builds a permanent connection between heaven and earth. The Spirit's descent follows from the Son's ascent. As Jesus says throughout the Gospel of John, the Spirit cannot come until the Son goes away. The Spirit descends upon Jerusalem and empowers the apostolic ministry from Jerusalem. Jesus says that he came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. He says this in the Gospel of Luke. And the kindling of this fire is liturgical, sacral language, referring to the creation of an altar on which the fire of divine presence burns. Isaiah chapter 66 describes Israelite emissaries converting Gentiles, even elevating some of these Gentiles to priestly and Levitical service. Note that Levitical service, well, this is the tribe of Levi. That is a specific tribe within the nation. To say that Gentiles are being elevated to priestly and Levitical service indicates dramatic transfiguration of what it means to participate in Israel's covenant. Having become the instrument of God's creative and life-endowing presence, the growth that grows from God is harvested from Gentiles and placed as a mincha, or a tribute, Leviticus 2, on God's altar in, the, in Isaiah 66. This tribute is consecrated bread, wine being added after the conquest, unmentioned in Leviticus 2, it's added later, and it signifies the representative portion of the worshiper's creative work and the ritually directing of that work toward the upbuilding of the temple on Zion, i.e. the church. So the worker works in the world in order to develop the world's potentials. This is signified by the baking of bread by creative fire. Note the fire is both destructive and creative. When it is directed in a precise and informed way, fire is immensely creative instead of merely destructive. And the rising of that bread and the fermentation of that wine signifies the development of created things from their potential state into their perfected and glorified state. That corresponds to an increase of value, which calls us back to what we read in Exodus chapter 25, that Israel is to contribute whatever their heart urges them to contribute. Thus, in the liturgy, let us lift up our hearts. In Leviticus 2, the tribute offering corresponds to the construction of the holy place with the bread corresponding to the 12, tri uh, 12 loaves of face bread, with the oil corresponding to the menorah, which was lit by uh, oil lamps, and with the incense corresponding to the altar of incense, which, of course, is always burning with incense. Point being is the tribute offering represents the value of the work in the world, and that work having increased the creative, or having increased the specificity and structure of the raw material of the world means that its value has risen. It is closer to the glorified archetype of the created thing than it was without that work. 
Now remember that the church is the dwelling place of God and all of the creation is meant to be churchized, as it were. It is meant to be permeated by the outflow of divine presence. Now in Isaiah 65, we see that the new heavens and the new earth, that is the glorified heaven and glorified earth, is described in terms indicating that the new Jerusalem is identified with it. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy is followed by, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. As the call of Isaiah has the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory, quoting Numbers 14, where God says, as I live, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So Isaiah 65 to 66 actually echoes Numbers chapter 14, speaking about the inheritance, speaking about the glory of the Lord. And it indicates the whole creation has become God's temple. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, God says in Isaiah chapter 66. Where the glory of the Lord dwells, that is the temple. You can see that in Exodus chapter 40 and 1 Kings chapter 8 and so forth. The glory of the Lord is what indwells the sanctuary. So if the glory of the Lord permeates all creation. All creation is the sanctuary of God. Now compare this to Isaiah 59 to 60. The Spirit of God is said to fall upon the remnant of Israel, the remnant who turns to the Lord after the Lord himself becomes the man who intercedes. It says Israel has been separated from God by their sins, and God was horrified at this. He saw that there was no man to intercede, and so he himself put on a breastplate of righteousness and so forth. He himself became the high priest that Israel lacked. And he fulfilled and undid the problem, which was that there was no man to intercede. So look back to Isaiah 53. The servant makes intercession for the transgressors. And that is why the servant is said to be high and lifted up, something which is only said of God elsewhere in Isaiah, and in fact, elsewhere in the whole Old Testament. The only the phrase is only used in the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah 56 to 60, after this happens, the Spirit of God seals that remnant of Israel. And then the nations gather to the mountain where God's glory dwells. The nations are said to bring to this mountain gifts of great value. In fact, the gifts that they bring are exactly what is signified liturgically in the tribute offering. That tribute offering, which is connected with the Israelite offering whatever wealth their heart stirs them to give. The temple is served with gold, worked into the inner sanctuary, and incense rising up to God, two gifts mentioned in Isaiah 60. And as we've talked about before, this is also connected to the Magi. The Magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then they worship the child. In the book of Acts, this dynamic appears in the repeated inflow of the apostles to Jerusalem, following their outflow to more and more distant Gentile nations. Remember, the Gospel of Luke is structured as a journey towards Jerusalem, where the book of Acts begins. Then the apostles flow out from Jerusalem. That's what Jesus says in, uh, at the end of Luke, beginning from Jerusalem. The apostles flow out from Jerusalem, then they keep returning back, and then they flow out again. Paul in Romans chapter 15 echoes very clearly uh, Isaiah 66 in describing the thanksgiving offering that he brings from the Gentile collection to Jerusalem. 
And that matches, in turn, his promised intent to reap some harvest, in his words from the Church of Rome, back in Romans chapter 1. That makes sense in light of what we know the tribute offering to be. When he refers to the offering being complete in Romans 15, if we know the text to which he's referring, we know that that offering is in fact an offering of bread, making perfect sense of the fact that he will then describe it as a harvest. The Spirit of God overshadows the city of God, and the city of God gives birth, new birth, to cities of men. The inflow back to the city of God, i.e. the wealth which flows from the healed nations after their purification from the river of life in Isaiah 65 to 66, builds the nations into that one city. Zion is diffused throughout all the creation, and all creation is concentrated on Zion. This is, these are two perspectives on a single dynamic whose theological archetype transcending time is the dynamism of procession and reversion describing the divine operation in the life of the triune God. The Father flows out through the Spirit to the Son. The Son receives that love from the Father through the Spirit and reciprocates it immediately, returning to the Father by that same Spirit in love. This is why in Ephesians 2, the Gentiles are adopted into the family in being linked to the citizenship, the politeia, or the commonwealth of Israel. This notion of citizenship is intimately connected to the idea of city. You can even see that the words citizenship and city are related, or in Greek, politeia and polis. Compare what we read in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is is in heaven, and in light of Galatians chapter 4, Jerusalem above in heaven is our mother. Uh, this underscores the fact that when we read of our citizenship being in heaven, the point is that we are enculturating terrestrial space with the life of heaven, not that we are destined to ultimately give up on terrestrial space and depart for heaven. Heaven descends to earth as earth ascends into heaven. As Isaiah says, all those who are enrolled in the citizenship of Zion, look at Isaiah chapter 4, are made holy or consecrated through the resplendent presence of God, which swallows up death forever. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. The Spirit brings all nations into God's heavenly sanctuary, his heavenly throne room, by establishing for them thrones. But the human family is the uh, heir of the whole creation. It is the human family who is to rule and exercise dominion over the creation. And the human family, in its very nature, is a plural unity. The let us, which begins the creative work, is a let us create man as male and female. The creative judgment of the Tower of Babylon is a let us. Let us go down, scatter their tongues. The 70 nations are divided, and yet they are reunified and also not reunified. It is the distinctness in tongues, the distinctness in language and culture and speech, which is preserved in the midst of the unification of their worship around the one Lord and one God. 
There are 70 elders in Exodus chapter 24, as there are 70 archetypal seats for each national archon, the angelic archon, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. The gematria, numerical value of sod, or secret council, which is the business of state in God's heaven, and which is even translated as council in certain contexts, is 70. This is because the heavenly council is conciliar on account of God's own conciliar pattern of life. Members of God's council come in the spirit and are called the sons of God. They are called sons because it is in the only begotten Son of the Father who is the source and paradigm of this relationship. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that the relation of father and son is the source of all fatherhood and thus all sonship, not only in earth, but also in heaven. Throughout Genesis, we read of God not only speaking to others in heaven, but also to himself or in his heart. This is the established context for the divine plural of Genesis chapter 1. Yes, indeed, this language is used with reference to the divine council, but the reason that there is such a thing as the divine council is because God from all eternity is the council of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that the Genesis chapter 1 uh, has that pre-eternal or trinitarian council in mind because we see explicitly the act of God's self-address throughout the Pentateuch. I believe there are 11 times where God addresses himself specifically. And there is a major theme, which we need to make a series of videos on sometime, uh, about the nature of conversation, the nature of language, as the governing principle of the Heavenly Council, and thus the governing principle of communion. This recalls the consistency and specificity of the character of the angel or messenger of the Lord. He's also called in Genesis chapter 15, the word of the Lord. So the divine plural is used when God creates man in his image as a diet of male and female. And as we mentioned also, in, when God turns the undifferentiated human family into a plenitude of nations. Nations which he immediately promises to bless in the seed of Abram, following his act to bless twofold man in Genesis chapter 1. So we can't separate Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. These are intimately tied together. And in fact, the language that is used of the blessing of Abraham, or the blessing of Abram more appropriately, um, is language taken not only from Genesis chapter uh, 1 and Genesis chapter 11, but it's taken from Genesis chapter 8, where the animals on the ark come out by families. So the whole idea of the church as a spiritual ark and the nations corresponding to the various kinds of animals, that symbolism is not a later Christian invention. It actually goes back to the earliest chapters of Genesis itself. In the book of Deuteronomy, the word bless is consistently linked with the word multiply. The unity of the human family is rooted and grounded in the unity of God who intends to bring the children of Adam into his heavenly sanctuary as joint rulers, and joint heirs. This is anticipated clearly in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis 2, God makes Adam before he plants the Garden of Eden. The garden is planted, in a way, before the eyes of Adam, as a paradigm of the character of his creative work. Adam sees how it is done and is meant to do likewise. Man is the image of God, and in context... 
to refer to man as the image of God means that he is to continue the work of the six-day creation. That is, to restructure, to form it, to fill it, and to brighten the nascent cosmic household which God has hatched ex nihilo. There was a single act of ex nihilo creation in Genesis 1-1, and God takes that raw material, forms, fills, and brightens it so that it inches closer and closer to the fullness of its heavenly prototype. And it's man, the generations of the heavens and the earth, the unifying principle of the heavens and the earth, the one who microcosmically binds both realities together in himself, who draws the two together and completes that task. Noah is a paradigm, a sign of the exalted Adam. He enters into the divine rest, that is, after all, the meaning of his name. He does so through perfect obedience in construction of God's sanctuary, after which the water which drowns the world becomes the instrument of Noah's ascension. Noah embraces the creation so that those who are with Noah are blessed, that is repeated again and again, and he offers creation to God in this olah, the ascension offering, usually rendered whole burnt offering, of Genesis chapter 8, which God smells so that he remembers his covenant by the bow of divine glory. Think about how when you smell a shampoo you haven't used in a while, you instantly remember the context in which you last used it. Smell is associated with memory, and so also in Scripture. What Noah gives to God, God gives back to Noah. The unclean beasts are made sacrificial food on God's altar, and God gives Noah, in turn, all beasts for food as he elevates him to kingship and authority, possessing from God the licit power of life and death when rendering judgment. This is very close, and not accidentally so, I think, to the old Roman concept of imperium possessed by certain magistrates in the Roman state. This is what it means to have authority and sovereignty within the covenantal order of Noah. Most telling is the fact that God, or that Noah goes on to plant a vineyard as God planted a garden. The authority to uh, render the death penalty is grounded on the fact that man is created in the image of God. That is, this isn't it's not just that because man is the image of God that killing that image is a capital offense, but also because man is the image of God, that the exalted image of that one God is the one through whom the sentence is passed. And thus it is that image of God who goes on to plant a garden or a vineyard like God himself did. And Noah goes on to rest in his tent as God rested in his world. And Noah issues prophetic judgment on his children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, just as God did the same for Adam, Eve, and the serpent. His children, the sons of God in Genesis 3. This ascension into God's rest and God's exercise of authority in creation is of profound significance for the life of the kingdom and specifically for how we understand authority in the church. Everything that I have just said is designed to connect in your mind the intimate bond existing among the divine presence, the Holy Spirit, the divine council, the unification of the nations, and the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Seventy nations correspond to the seventy thrones in God's council because God brings all nations to share in his sabbatical rest and to sit with him on his throne as Jesus promises in the book of Revelation. A prophet at the most basic level is a member of God's heavenly council by the indwelling spirit. 
This is seen, obviously, in Isaiah chapter 6, but also in countless other passages. Consider, for example, Ezekiel 1 and 2. Ezekiel sees the chariot of God riding towards him. The chariot of God is powered by the motive principle, which is the spirit in the wheels. And just as the spirit later in the book enters into the dry bones and reconstitutes them and resurrects them, so also the spirit of God goes into Ezekiel and constitutes him as a son of Adam. It's no accident that Ezekiel and Daniel are being written at the same time. And these two texts, Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1 to 2, uh, actually are, are, are quite closely connected. And that's not just an accident. They, that's important for the interpretation of both of them. It is the Spirit who flows out and gathers in the nations of the world into the city of God, overshadowed by the divine Spirit of glory. A city is characterized by, the, by a highly specified and complicated structure governing the relation of its parts and subsidiary units to the whole. In a field, one might scatter a few stones to the wind so that their spatial relation has no meaningful pattern that is visible or intelligible. But in the kind of size which is appropriate for cities, each part is structured so that its relation to all other parts is purposeful. It concretely realizes the purpose for which the whole city grows as an organism. Just consider the way that uh, scripture uses arboreal language to describe the development of human life. The way that uh, God creates fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit, and seeds which burst above the ground. And then man is fruitful and multiply, and man has seed. It's just so striking to me that we have a forest of 70 nations to uh, cement the analogy between um, the life of trees, the life of forests, and the life of the human family. And then you look at the way that cities organically develop. Look at skyscrapers. Look at New York City. It's a forest of human life, which naturally, in terms of the life of the whole, which is greater than the sum of the parts, seems to impel life of mankind to drive upwards, to mirror in certain respects the way that a forest grows and develops. The architectural structure just described symbolically corresponds in turn to a social Structure. You can see this in um, the various ziggurats or pyramids that are constructed across the world and form kind of the basic idea for a Noachic temple. Um, in Old World India, for example, the stepped pyramids, and that stepped pyramid is everywhere. You find it in Mesoamerica, you find it in Egypt. The earliest pyramid in Egypt is a stepped pyramid. Um, you find it everywhere. But in, uh, uh, in Old World India, the steps of those pyramids, at least some of them, actually have engravings of the respective social classes there, signifying the correspondence between the architectural holy mountain, the hierarchy, which is the basis of creation as a whole, and the microcosmic representation of that hierarchy in the hierarchy of human life. And that, in turn, goes down to the level of the individual, like the individual person has a hierarchy which is internal to the life of one human body, soul, and spirit. In antiquity, the priest king ascends a stepped pyramid in the year right. This is in China, it's in Mesoamerica, uh, or I mean Babylon, it may well be in Mesoamerica, but um, I would have to double check that, in Babylon, and certainly it is there in Leviticus 16 in Israel, in the year right to become the mediating point of heaven and earth. Uh, each step 
if the pyramid corresponds to a layer of structure in the society, i.e., architecturally speaking, in the city, on whose behalf the priest-king is mediating. The physical and political cosmos are mutually interior. Uh, the coronation of the king, princes, lords, and others creates a persistent pattern governing the mode in which an increasingly complicated society is linked together in relations of mutual obligation and benefit. God remakes the world in the incarnation and the accomplishment of the Messiah. And so Isaiah 32 says that the messianic king shall rule in righteousness and his princes shall rule in justice. We see that the two are, in one way, a single subject of operation. The prophets speak of the king who will rule in justice and righteousness. To take one of those words and apply it to the king while using the other for his princes is to imply that the princes are extensions of the king's own reign. It is the whole Christ, head and body. They are his household. They represent him in the literal sense, represent, not standing in where there is absence, but representing to bring about true presence. All of this is why Paul speaks of Christians taking each other to court and being judges of the world in the context of the paschal sacrifice by the spirit of the new covenant. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, and that's the Eucharist which unifies the churches as one church in one spirit. The spirit unifies distinct subjects in such a way that their distinctions are realized in a fashion that underscores the harmony of their natures. The spirit produces beautiful music in the choir of the saints. The choir and the enthroned counselors are, conceptually speaking, very tightly bound. Just think of the traditional way that we speak of Peter's preeminence among the apostles. He is the Corypheus, literally the leader of the choir, which is the apostolic college. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I am going to make one more video because there was uh, a lot of um, ground clearing and preparation done in this video, and I... Uh, when I make a video about councils, um, I want at least to have one of them that just goes right into Acts chapter 15 because I imagine a lot of people will look at this and go, well, okay, when are you actually going to get to the point? Um, but it's really important ground clearing here. So since we're a half hour in, uh, that will be that. And uh, by God's will, I will talk to you soon. And uh, please do keep me in your prayers.